One of the dearest friends I have in this life is Dr. Bob Jones. He's a wonderful friend, a faithful friend, a man of tremendous capacity to love and to help and serve. He has a unique gift of giving his life to others, which he has done through an entire lifetime. It's been a joy to know him. He's been a strength, a help, and encouragement. He and I were classmates together, believe it or not. That was back in about 2010, I think. No, that it must have been 1810. Uh, more like 1810. We've got to get back there far enough. He and I both were good friends of Abraham Lincoln. And it's just been such a joy to know him. We've spoken together at conferences around the world, and it's, been a, it's just a blessing to have friends like him. And so, Dr. Bob, come and speak to us from God's Word and from the heart that God has given you for this ministry. God bless you. I'm sure that most of us who have known of this ministry and Dr. Innes for years are fully aware of the historical and spiritual significance of this hour. The weight of it is profound. When you think that for 45 years, <laughs> a servant of God, a prophet of God, has stood in this place, pointing men to the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. God has allowed him to be surrounded with some very special sheep for this pasture. You have been part of this sheepfold a long time. Others are newer here. But you love the shepherd. You love the great shepherd. And you love the sheepfold and your fellow sheep. It shows. Over the years, when God has allowed us to come, I have never failed to be warmed of heart by the love you have for each other and preeminently for the love of Christ that you show. You've been through some hard trials, some frightening times. At the university, and I was saying to my wife Karen, who is here with me today, as we walked up here, I said, do you remember in chapel long ago when after the homosexuals beat on the walls and these doors and screamed insults and challenge and threats. Do you remember how horrified we were to hear that? And she says, yes, who could ever forget it? But I'm thinking for those of you who were here, how much worse it was. You have had the right friends and you've had the right enemies all of your life. The work of God is known for its friends and its enemies, and men of God, like your pastor, known for their friends and their enemies. Just as important to a man's reputation are his enemies. <laughs> your pastor's been on the right side of Bible truth, on issues of the day, the cultural changes, the incursions of the world against the people of God. He's been on the right side. He's led you in the things of God for 45 years. And now, I'm not going to say it's over because by the grace of God, he'll still be preaching to you. 
but he's not going to be your pastor anymore. Pastor Dan and Chris, <laughs> apart from the knowledge that God has raised you up for succeeding, there is nothing in the world that I could think of that would make you want to be here except the will of God. I mean, Bob Jones University is 95 years old. My grandfather founded it. My father was president 25 years. When he stepped aside and said, I want to go and spend more time on the mission field, the board said to him, well, we want your son Bob to succeed you. I was 32 years old. I was no more ready for that than the man in the moon. I was terrified. I wanted to run. But I knew it was the will of God, and I couldn't run. I'm sure if the heart of Pastor Dan and Chris had known, they'd like to run, but they can't. They've been serving you the best they know how in the will of God. But it's frightening. It's frightening. I, I, I hope you understand that, humanly speaking, the work of the ministry is frightening. Because you are mouthpieces for omnipotent almighty God and you better speak his words because you're just an ambassador who speaks for the king and delivers the message you're just the messenger you don't make the message you deliver it because it was handed to you to be passed on and a man of God who stands in a pulpit prays Lord keep me from saying what I should not say as much as his prayer has helped me to say what I am supposed to say. You've had a man here that feared God for 45 years. He feared getting God's way. He feared misrepresenting God. He understands his human frailty. He knew the human incapabilities that he possessed. But he stayed here anyway in the will of God. When Pastor Dan called me and said, we're having this service and would you come and speak in behalf of your friend, Dr. Ennis? I was overwhelmed. I felt very weak and trembly and I thought, Lord, God, what can I say about a servant of yours that I've esteemed all my life so highly he said we were classmates. We were classmates, but I've always looked up to him. He always seemed much older than me. <laughs> I knew he was much wiser. I knew he was more godly. I knew that I had much to learn from him, and I've tried to learn from him all my life. Uh, he's more than a peer, a ministry peer. He is to me... Uh, a ministry example. He walks with God. And I'm so thrilled to be here today. I, I can't even begin to express it. And so unworthy. But, but I'm thinking of you, Pastor Dan, as I, in the process of this. Have you ever noticed how big Dr. Ennis' feet are? He has big feet for a man his size. That means he has big shoes. But God hasn't called you to fill them. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring the gospel of peace. He's had beautiful feet. I've never seen them. 
feet are the ugliest part of the body in my estimation, next to the knee. I don't know why women always want to show off their knees. But, but they're beautiful feet because they bring a beautiful message. They take you where the message, the beautiful message of the saving grace of Christ is needed. They're beautiful feet because of the beauty of Him, the Lord Jesus, for whom you preach. They're beautiful because they carry the authority of the Prince of Peace, the God of Glory. One of the things that kept me from wanting to surrender to God's will to preach was the awareness that my father's shoes were too big for me to fill and my grandfather's shoes were too big for me to fill. And it was, I guess, my pride that said, Lord, I can't fill those shoes and the comparison is going to be odious. And I had to get over that and say, it's not about me anyhow, so who cares? God gave me shoes to fill. And if God wanted me to fill the shoes of my predecessor, he would never have removed my predecessor. He would have let him stay right there. The time has come when God is bringing to a close the formal structured ministry, pastoral ministry of David Ennis. And I hope the congregation realizes that you're doing a great disfavor to the succeeding pastor if you expect him to be like his predecessor. He feels the pressure of that. Don't contribute to it. Now that's really not my message, but I just wanted to get that off my heart because I feel great sympathy for you. I've been there. I understand how it feels. And the Lord will help you both. So when I hung up the phone from Pastor Pelletier's call, I immediately began to think about what God might want me to say. I've thought about it for weeks since. So basically I'm here today in the will of God and by the help of God to try to paint a portrait of Pastor Ennis. I've always wanted to be a painter, but I cannot paint with a brush. But I do have a picture in my mind of Pastor Ennis that I'd like to leave with you. You know, there are times when organizations have had a CEO who is now retiring. They'll pay a very expensive portraitist to come in and do an oil painting that will hang on a wall. You have all kind of photographs on your wall here from the very founding pastor until the present hour. The only one in color is his. He's a very colorful pastor. The rest were just black and white, I guess. This will not be a very colorful picture because I don't have the capability of that. But it is a portrait in my mind of your pastor I would like to leave with you. He and I have a common friend who is now in heaven, Dr. Ian Paisley of Northern Ireland. He and I have known him for years, preached with him for years. Forty years he was in the European House of Commons. His wife was in the House of Lords. He was 32 years in the British European Parliament, a very notable European British statesman. When he entered, he's also a pastor of a very significant church in Northern Ireland. 
And his stand for the Lord ran him into conflict with the government of Northern Ireland. They put him in jail for a time in his early ministry because they told him, you cannot preach outside. He said, I have a mandate to preach the word of God and I will preach it wherever I want to preach it. And they said, well, you preach it here outside. And they put him in jail. Like John Bunyan and so many others have gone to jail for the Lord. Like Paul. He came out of that with a very, uh, a very despised reputation on the part of the British government. He won election. He got elected to the British Parliament. He had a friend, a pastor in London who took him the first day into the halls of Westminster, the Parliament. Literally, my pastor friend who walked with him that first day said his peers, his fellow members of the House of Commons, spat on the floor in front of Ian Paisley as he walked down the corridors. That's how much they hated him. But his life... His principles never changed for 40 years. And at the end of 40 years, they did something that had only been done three times before for a member of parliament, a member of the House of Commons. They hired a famous portraitist and paid him almost $100,000 to paint a picture of Ian Paisley to hang on the walls of the House of Commons. They hated him still. Many of them did not agree with anything he stood for, but they respected him. And they wanted him to be remembered. We are here today to remember 45 years of a man of God who has done his best to speak to us of the greatness of God he said a while ago in the opening remarks that his messages on our great God is what he most wanted to be remembered for the greatness of God has been his message so would you help me would you bear with me just a few minutes as I try to paint what I think a portrait Pastor Ennis would look like. If I could paint this picture, I would paint a proclaiming man. A proclaiming man, like Paul, who preached Christ everywhere he went. Listen to these verses describing the Apostle Paul, a proclaiming man. I would like you to have, as you think of Pastor Ennis today, the picture of the Apostle Paul who went across the Roman Empire from Asia to Europe proclaiming not himself but Jesus Christ. Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians 1.23, We preach Christ crucified unto the Jews, a stumbling block unto the Greeks. Foolishness. Second Corinthians 4, 5, we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord and ourselves, your servants, for Jesus' sake. 
Ephesians 3.8, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Colossians 1.27 and 28, whom we preach warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Jesus Christ. Galatians 1.16, that I might reveal his son and preach him among the heathen. Your pastor has spent his life a proclaiming man of the message of Jesus. And as Paul went for 35 years across the Roman Empire with this message, be reconciled to God. He was in conflict with the government of his day every day of his life. The Roman Empire worshipped the emperor. In this case of Paul's day, Nero. Perhaps the most wicked and infamous of all of those wicked and infamous emperors. Every day of his life, he was confronting idolatry, and that's what the worship of the empire of the emperor was. When he was at Athens, he said, One day I was on the streets and I saw idols everywhere in the streets of Athens. Athens, and I saw one idol on one corner to the unknown God. And Paul said, whom you ignorantly worship, I want to manifest that unknown God. He is Jesus Christ, the eternal creator God of heaven. And he said to the pagan worshipers of Jupiter in Lystra, when he was on one of his missionary journeys through Asia Minor, He said, I'm preaching that you should turn from these vain things unto the living God who made heaven and earth. Everywhere he went, he was in conflict with the prevailing religions of his day, the prevailing gods that were worshipped, and most of all with the pagan Roman Empire who worshipped the emperor himself. Your pastor has been a proclaiming man and the message he preaches puts him in conflict with the godless culture of the day, with the false religions of the day, and their churches of those deities that are false deities being worshipped, some across the street and all around you. And he's been in the midst proclaiming the one and only God, Jesus Christ. The triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He's been in conflict. His message is in conflict with the prevailing messages of the day, which are idolatrous messages. And there's a risk for that. Uh, There is a price to be paid for that. But I want you to think about something. His prevailing message prevails today just like Paul's did. The gospel of Jesus Christ still prevails two millennia after the, after the worship of Rome's emperor was buried along with the emperor. When Paul preached at Thessalonica in Greece, the unbelievers gathered together, Jews and Gentiles, unbelieving, hostile to the message, 
And they said of Paul and his followers, these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, those who proclaim the message of Jesus Christ, the one true God, are always in conflict with human government. And it is still true, perhaps more than any time in the lifetime of any of us sitting in this room. Government wants to be God. It has always been so. And we proclaim Jesus Christ, virgin born, God in human flesh, crucified, buried, risen, and coming again, the King of Kings. The conquering message proclaimed by Paul is still the conquering message. And it, it prevails long after all of the professors of the pagan deities have long since gone and been buried with the idols they worshipped. It costs something to proclaim this message. It costs human reputation. When Paul stood before the Roman governor, Festus, after listening to Paul's message while Paul was on trial by Caesar's representative in Caesarea, he said, Paul, you are a crazy man. You are mad. The mayor thinks your pastor's a madman. The preceding mayors have thought so. The city council has thought so. But it's been that way with every proclaiming man of God who ever lived and preached the truth and would rather have died than give it up. So I try to paint a picture as I think about your pastor. I think of the Apostle Paul and his proclaiming message of the eternal King of Kings. And I see your pastor in my mind's eye as a proclaiming man like Paul. Secondly, I see him as a fighting man like Eliezer. You say, who is Eliezer? 2 Samuel 23, verses 9 and 10. He may not be a man just on the tip of your tongue. He was one of David's 30 fighting men. It's worthy of every prince to have brave men in his service. It's necessary for a prince to have courageous men who hazard their lives for a cause that is bigger than the man himself. When Barnabas and Paul were going to be presented to the council over which James, the brother of Jesus, presided in Jerusalem shortly after the Lord had ascended on high. When they presented Barnabas and Paul, who came to Jerusalem from Antioch and Syria, they said of Paul and Barnabas, these men have hazarded their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Your pastor has hazarded his life for the name of the Lord Jesus. Eliezer was such a man, one of David's 30 strong men. But it says in this passage that we're going to read 
that he was one of the three of the mightiest of the 30. I begin at verse 9 of 2 Samuel 23. Eliezer, the son of Dodo, the Ohite, one of the three mighty men with David when they defied the Philistines that were there, gathered together to battle, and the men of Israel were gone away. That's a shame. He arose and smote the Philistines until his hand was weary. His hand clave to the sword, and the Lord wrought a great victory that day, and the people returned after him only to the spoil. Eliezer was a man of faith in God and in the righteousness of the cause of his fights. And it produced uncommon valor. Have you ever known your pastor to run from a fight? He doesn't look for fights. He'd a lot rather have peace. He told us that yesterday in the car. He said, I'm really a shy man. You may not have recognized that. Because when it comes to matters of truth and principle and eternal word of God, he's a fighting man. And you have to be if you preserve the truth. James said in the third verse of that little book, earnestly contend, earnestly struggle, earnestly fight for the faith. If you don't fight for what is valuable, it's going to be lost. It's going to be stolen. It's going to be forgotten. If you're going to be a man of God, you have to be willing to fight for the truth and to die for the truth if necessary. Eliezer believed in David's cause enough that he was willing to go to battle against a, a prevailing and uh, uh, prominent enemy, the Philistines, who greatly outnumbered their little group. But he stood until he was weary and his hand clave to the sword and he fought for what was right. I read about the French Foreign Legion, an exclusive fighting contingent of the, of the French army. They were founded in the early 19th century, as I understand it. And their slogan was, if I falter, push me. If I stumble, pick me up. And if I retreat, shoot me. And I believe your pastor has had that kind of spirit all of his life. He's been a fighting man. He would rather die than retreat. He, like Eliezer, was a man who grew weary in the cause, but never weary of the battle against the enemies of God. He was a man who trusted in his sword to prevail in the work for which it was made. And that sword clave to his hand all day long. And they, when he got through, they had to pry his fingers loose. He was that committed to the sufficiency of his weapon. He refused to turn loose of it. It was the only power 
that he had to prevail. And we told we learned we learned from Ephesians chapter six, the seventeenth verse. Take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And he took that admonition scripturally seriously. And for 45 years, his hand claved to the sword. That's why he's worthy of honor and tribute today. He knew where his power was. He knew the weapon that would prevail. Not his words, not his stubbornness, not his fighting spirit. But the sufficiency of the word of God that's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and pierces even to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and intents of the heart. And did you notice in this brief passage we read from 2 Samuel? He stood his ground while the other men of Israel fled from the fight. He has had other men of God around him through life that are no longer on the field of battle because they love their own lives more than the truth, their own reputations more than the reputation of their God for whom they fought. They left, but when the battle was over, they returned to the spoils. That's contemptible. He was not only a proclaiming man and a faithfully a faithful fighting man, but lastly, he was a God confident man. God confident man. Until he said a while ago that Philippians 1.16 was his life verse. I, I didn't know that. But when I thought of the picture of this man that came to my mind, it was the picture of a God-confident man being confident of this very thing. That he would just call you as faithful. So, as a proclaiming man, I, I see Paul in him. And as... A fighting man, I see Eliezer in him. And as a God-confident man, I see Caleb. Joshua's compatriot, who was one of the 12 spies that Moses sent into Canaan. Ten of them came back with a very discouraging message. We can't go. They're giants in the land. The cities are too walled and too high and too mighty. And we're just nothing. And they're, those, we're going to be like grasshoppers. When we go into this land, they'll just tread us underfoot. We can't prevail. Caleb said we can. God said that we're to go. He gave us this land. We're supposed to take possession of it. Of course we can go. Because of who our God is. And Caleb and Joshua were the two God-confident men who were able to go into the land after all the rest of the people had to perish over the 40 years of the wilderness wanderings because they would not believe what God had said. Let me read it for you. 
Joshua 14, beginning in verse 6. Then the children of Judah came unto Joshua in Gilgal, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said to him, Now they're in the land. Now they're ready to take possession. And Joshua, the leader, said to him, You know the thing the Lord said to Moses, the man of God, concerning me in Kadesh Barnea? Caleb said, Forty years old was I when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land. And I brought word again what was in my heart. Nevertheless, my brethren that went up with me made the heart of the people to melt. But I wholly followed the Lord my God. And Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land whereon thy feet have trodden shall be thine, thine inheritance and thy children's forever, because thou hast wholly followed the Lord my God. Now, behold, the Lord has kept me alive, as he said, Forty-five years, even since the Lord spoke his word unto Moses, while the children of Israel wandered in the wilderness, now, lo, I am this day eighty-five years old. As yet, I am as strong this day as I was in the day that Moses sent me. My strength was then, and even so is my strength now for war, both to go out and to come in. Now therefore give me this mountain, whereof the Lord spoke in that day, for thou hast heard in that day how the Anakims were, the giants were there, and that the cities were great and fenced. If so be the Lord will be with me, then I shall be able to drive them out, even as the Lord said. And Joshua blessed him. And gave unto Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, Hebron for an inheritance. Hebron, therefore, became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, unto this day, because he wholly followed the Lord God of Israel. Where has his confidence been for 45 years? In the greatness of the might and the goodness of his God. That's what brought him to this conquest hour. Confident that God gave him this mountain. Confident that supernatural enablement would make possible what was humanly impossible. Confidence in his God. If the Lord be with me, I'll take this mountain. Confidence that obedience to God's promises would be rewarded in God's time. So here he is in the land, 45 years after the promise, to go take it. And he said in the 14th chapter of Joshua, the Lord has kept me alive, as he said, these 45 years. Ever since the Lord spoke his word unto his people. A proclaiming man, by Paul. A fighting man, by Eliezer. And a God-confident man, like Caleb, 
I'm glad God gave me a friend to hang out with like you. And you have a multitude of friends and church members here who say, I'm glad God gave a man like this for us to learn from, to follow, to trust. Our confidence in God is greater because He taught us that we have that kind of God. Our confidence in the Scripture is greater because He caught us, taught us it's a sufficient sword to vanquish the enemy. He taught us that whatever friendships it costs us or misunderstanding in life it costs us, the message of proclaiming the deity, the uniqueness, the eternality of our God, Jesus Christ, is a message that we must proclaim as long as we live on this earth. So I close with this. Words of Spurgeon. These are the words he found that he wanted to speak about based on Ecclesiastes 11.6, which says, In the evening, withhold not thy hand. Spurgeon said, Some are spared to a long evening of green old age. He and I are the same age. You know, I've told people getting old is not bad at all if you have a modicum of brain left and even a modicum of strength left. Nobody expects it to be like it used to be. But as long as you have a little left, give what's left to God. Spurgeon said, some are spared to a long evening. He's been getting old for a long time. It's been a long green evening. Not a withered and dark one. Still green. Some are spared to a long green old age. If such be my case, Spurgeon said, let me use such talents as I still retain and to the last hour serve my blessed and faithful Lord. By His grace, I will die in the harness and lay down my charge only when I lay down my body. Age may instruct the young, cheer the faint, encourage the desponding, If eventide has less of young, vigorous heat, it should have more of calm wisdom. Therefore, in the evening, Spurgeon said, I will not withhold my hand. Spurgeon spoke those words, but your pastor lives those words. I think it describes him well. And you are so blessed to be here in the evening in the calm of the wisdom and the green that is still around.
don't forget this day, this 45th anniversary day. History is being made today. The close of one history and the start of another. Our Father, you are eternal God. Your work goes on. Your workers pass away. Your work is ever fresh because your word is ever fresh. We thank you for what has preceded Dr. Ennis and what will follow Dr. Ennis. And we thank you for Dr. Ennis. In Jesus' name, amen. This is 45 years at Hamilton Square Baptist Church. It all began back in the year 1961. This is 60 years. And before we leave today, I want to tell you something. I'm glad I did it. Have no regrets. It is wonderful what God will do. Are you listening to me? Are you listening to me? It is wonderful what God will do with that which is fully given to him. Let me repeat that. It is wonderful what God will do with that which is fully given to him. And if anything would be the joy of my heart, boys and young, young fellas, teenagers, young guys, are you listening to me? You've got to decide what you're going to do with your life. Decide today you're going to give it to God completely. All of it, not some of it. Not when you're 30 years old or 40 years old. Now. And if you're 60 years old, now. If you're 50 years old, now. The rest of it, give it to Him. Give it to Him. Give it to Him. There will be no regrets when you get done. It is amazing. My high school counselor said to me, David, she said, what are you planning to do? I was maybe 16 years old, 15 years old at the time. I said, well, I think God's called me to the ministry. Oh, he said, you don't want to do that. There's no money in that. He was right. <laughs> I can hook you up here and you can, you can go in. You have the ability to go into management in some company and you, you can make a lot of money in life. I have a treasure today. Look at my treasure. There aren't millions of dollars couldn't buy this treasure. I want to challenge you today to give everything, give it all unreservedly to God. And everything you've got left in life, and I, everything I've got left in life belongs to God. I don't know how much that is, how long that will last, but it all belongs to God. Let's bow our heads for just a moment, please. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. I'm not going to ask for hands to be raised. I want to challenge every person here. Man, woman, boy, girl, young you boys and girls, you listening to me? Talk to God about this thing. God has given you a life. Give it wholly to Him. Doesn't matter what stage of life you're in. You may have given Him before. Just tell Him the rest is all yours. All of it is yours. And if you'll help me, you know, you make a conditional promise to God. That was mine. He that's begun a good work, he will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. God will do the work, but you, but you have to give the life to him so he can do the work in your life. Give your life to him now, unreservedly. Beg him to fill you with his Holy Spirit. 
May the fruit of the Spirit of God abound. May many souls be saved because of what we are giving him today. May lives be encouraged and helped and strengthened and blessed all around us because we're giving our lives not to keep them for ourselves, but to give them completely away in gospel ministry. And when you give the way, you end up getting everything back at the end. It's absolutely amazing. Pray now. Give your life to God.